Does career success lead to happiness or is it the other way around? What behaviors have philosophy, religion, and modern science proven lead to happiness? Author of One People, One Planet, Michael Glauser shares the winning recipe for happiness and how it can be applied in the workplace. Hey there, I'm Krista Vance, entrepreneur and operations leader. And I'm Matt Vance, award-winning author and social innovation researcher. We're your hosts of the Culture Profit Podcast. Your place for purposeful company culture strategy. Learn from HR pros, executives, and thought leaders how to prioritize profits by prioritizing people. This episode is sponsored by Mobrium, the best friend of forward-thinking HR leaders helping you strengthen your employer reputation as a reflection of your real culture. Learn more at Mobrium.com. Thank you for joining Matt and I today. We'd like to welcome our special guest, a four-time author and inspiring leader, Mike Michael Glauser. Thanks for joining us, Mike. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to visit with you today. We're excited to have you, and we have a little bit more about Michael. Michael Glauser is an entrepreneur, author, business consultant, and university professor. He has built successful companies in the retail, wholesale, and educational industries and has worked with hundreds of businesses from startups to multinational enterprises in leadership development, communication, team building, and organizational strategy. Today, Mike serves as executive director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and the John. We do love Aggies. We're proud to support that in the John M. Huntsman School of Business, which is also where Matt graduated and where you guys are connected at Utah State University. He's also the director of the Seed Poverty Alleviation Program, helping thousands of people out around the world to improve their standard of living and benefit their communities through entrepreneurship. Mike has published three books on entrepreneurship, Glorious Accidents, The Business of Heart, and Main Street Entrepreneur, which chronicles his 4,000-mile bicycle ride across America to interview 100 remarkable entrepreneurs who have successfully merged livelihood and lifestyle in places they wanted to live. In his latest book, One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together, presents six proven principles to help us increase our happiness, improve our relationships, and create greater civility in organizations and communities. You can learn more at onepeopleoneplanet.com. Wow, thank you. (laughs) Mike, it's uh, so good to have you here. And for everyone listening, um, I just wanted to give a little bit of the backstory of how um, we got connected with Mike. So As Krista mentioned, I went to the um, School of Business up at Utah State, and Krista also went to Utah State, Um, but Mike was one of the professors there when I was there. Later on, we got connected at an event. Um, I was representing a company that I worked at, and we got talking, and I told Mike that I was writing a book. I was a couple years into writing the review cycle, and Mike, having been an author himself, he had lots of tips to share and some good advice and ended up acting as a mentor to me through the duration of the author process of publishing that book. And it was about the same time that I was writing the review cycle that Mike was also working on his own book, the most recent one, One People, One Planet. They released within a couple months of each other, which was pretty cool. But Mike was just so willing to give up his time, share insights, and make connections. And for someone with 
so many things going on. It was um, in, incredibly impactful to to learn from him. So super grateful to have you here with us, Mike. Yeah, it's great to be here. And it was really fun to work with you and give a minor amount of input on your book, but I'm glad it turned out well. It's a great book. You're always helping entrepreneurs, whether they're at school or not anymore, right? <laughs> it's kind of my mission these days. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about your cycling experience. We know that that's obviously a big thing for you, having written a book, your 4,000-mile cycling ride across the nation. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's your favorite place that you've ridden, or maybe it's your favorite place that you currently ride. Well, the favorite ride I've ever done was that bicycle ride across America. I've lived in America most of my life, and I Felt like I'd never seen it until I got on a bike and went through 104 small towns across the country. And it was just a fabulous experience. One of the best career experiences I've ever had. And the book Main Street Entrepreneur came out of that bicycle ride. But right now I, I live in Salt Lake City and I like to uh, just go east of here up to Wanship. And uh, it's 20 minutes from my home. There's a staging area there and I can ride from Wanship to Colville to Echo to Lost Creek Reservoir to Hennifer to you know East Canyon. I can uh, ride for 30 miles to 100 miles and hardly ever see any cars or any stop signs or stoplights. And so my wife and I tend to ride uh, where it's safer these days. And so just getting up there in those mountains east of Salt Lake is where we really love to ride right now. That's awesome that you ride with your wife. Yeah. I uh, spent my whole life trying to keep up with her and every event we do, and we have a lot of fun time riding together. That is amazing. So cool. Yeah, I agree. You got to avoid the traffic, though. <laughs> a lot safer when there are no cars. So <laughs> Definitely agree. Kristen, I like to ride as well. And yeah, it's definitely more fun when you don't have to worry about busy traffic. So you've written four books, Mike. Three are about entrepreneurship. Your most recent book is a little bit different. Tell us about what makes it so different. So this book uh, addresses two very serious concerns we have in our country right now. They're at the level of people referring them to epidemics, and they do have a huge impact on our life in organizations. So they're related to building great organizations. Uh, but the first one is this epidemic of despair that we're facing. And you know, all the latest statistics from the CDC and the National Institute of Mental Health show that anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and actual suicides have gone up in every single age demographic over the last decade or so. And, you know, last year, 22% uh, of Americans were treated for a diagnosable emotional and mental illness. And the age group I teach, college age, it's even higher. It's 33%. Holy cow. And... Uh, you know, 46% of us say we don't have uh, close friendships and we're the highest user of uh, drugs for mental and emotional health as a, as a nation against all other developed nations. And so the epidemic of despair is, is one thing we're very concerned about and it's impacting organizations. The second we call the epidemic of incivility and recent surveys show that 90% of all employees in America have seen a pretty serious uncivil act at work. And 50% of those surveyed, this, these are large you know, national surveys across multiple industries, 50% say they see uncivil acts regularly. 
And when you see uncivil acts in organizations, it leads to what we call quiet quitting. Their effort is reduced, performance goes down, and they basically start looking for something else. And uh, kind of shocking is about 25% of those people say they take out their frustration on customers. So if you own a large organization, you got a lot of employees that aren't doing much work and are angry and looking for a new job and and you're getting some uh, you know serious problems in customer interaction. And so those two epidemics, the epidemic of despair and the epidemic of incivility, uh, have a huge impact on how well an organizational functions. They're a big part of the culture. And as you know very clearly, culture impacts the big four outcomes of retention, recruiting, recruiting, retention, performance and, and satisfaction. And so that's why this book seemed relevant at the time. And that is, you know, huge. It shouldn't seem as like news in the sense of, holy cow, I wouldn't have even guessed. But hearing some of those numbers and the specific impact that, you know, despair and the lack of civility in the workplace is having on um, businesses, their operations, and it trickles to customers. I, I know Kronos had a study not long ago where they looked at the satisfaction, customer satisfaction metrics of um, highly engaged workforces. And they found there were uh, there was obviously a positive correlation and it was about 30%. You were getting 30% higher customer satisfaction scores with a more engaged workforce. And so it, it can trend both ways, right? Of um, if people are happy and engaged and they like what they do, they feel connected, they have friendships, then there's a lot of positive um, impacts to gain both on profitability and performance. And But the negative, holy cow, those are things that need to be addressed. Yeah, exactly. We do. We live in such a great country. We really do. But there's obviously a lot of areas that we can improve in if, if those statistics are coming out, you know? Yeah. So I, I get to travel all over the world with our seed poverty alleviation program. And you know, I work with governments across the globe and I come back to America and I'm so happy to be in this country. And, you know, we have a lot of problems. We're not perfect. But the cool thing is, as citizens, we have the opportunity to work on our own problems and we can do that quickly through forming organizations and associations and creating causes. And so these are two concerns that, that I'm really interested in helping to resolve in our country and in our organizations right now. Well, I think that's very amenable. And we um, we want to talk a little bit more about a specific part of your book, Corporate Civility. You mentioned how employees are impacted in the workplace and how culture trickles to all the parts of profitability for a company. Um, so tell us a little bit about corporate civility. What is it and why is it needed in today's workplace? Okay, corporate civility really has to do with respectful dialogue, the ability to talk to each other respectfully and value each other's opinions. So uh, if we're civil at work, we realize we've all had different experiences, we have different values, we have different perspectives, and all of those can come to bear on solving problems in organizations. And so no one is really left out of the conversation, but we listen, deep listening, we don't, uh, try to process and think of what we're gonna say when the other person stops talking, but we listen deeply and then we respond to each other with respect. So it's it's respectful conversation. It's kind of part of what Joseph Gray calls crucial conversations. And the reason it's important is civility is 
a part of this overall culture that has such a huge impact on the big outcomes of organizations. And, and what we found is civility, it, it cannot be mandated, it can't be monitored, it can't be enforced, it can't be rewarded and punished, but it comes, civility comes when we teach and people internalize and practice values and certain behaviors in the organization. And so in our book, One People, One Planet, we focus on some behaviors that help people enjoy being together and working well together. And that improves civility, but most important, it improves culture as a subset of civility at work. It becomes the culture, how you treat each other. That becomes the culture. Yeah, you know, and culture, you know, uh, Matt, from your research, culture has to do with the purpose of the organization, the vision of leadership, the uh, example of leaders, the ability for people to interact positively, and then the ability to have growth opportunities. And, you know, I I just read the study by the American Psychological Association, which is fascinating. It, it shows that 81% of everyone surveyed last year across America, and all the surveys they do, say they want to work for an organization that deals with overall human well-being, emotional, mental health. So we used to just focus on job-related skills in a silo. Like you come to work, you do this job, you go home. And now people are saying, we want to be part of a community at work. We want to be part of a family. And, you know, we experience physical health uh, and physical illnesses sometimes, and we experience mental health and uh, emotional illnesses at some time. And we want an organization to look at look at the whole individual and help us uh, with human flourishing at work. No, I, I think that's so true. And I, I have some friends in the HR space who talk about this focus of you know the human experience, looking at each individual as a person and recognizing that their experience at work is a part of their more their larger life, their human experience. And Sometimes I felt that that's a little bit overreaching, that it needs to be focused more on the employee experience, the transactional relationship that an employee has with their employer. But I think you're you're right that we have to recognize there is um, a depth to each one of us. We each have a soul. We have innate needs. Some of them are more surface level and, and transactional, but other needs are much deeper. But one thing I wanted to mention, Mike, is the, with your book, One People, One Planet, I really appreciated, Crystal will tell you this, I'm not a big reader, but this is a book that I actually read all the way through, um, <laughs> wow. which is ironic since I wrote a book, but the way that it's laid out is so logical, um, looking at you know religious components to philosophies that bring happiness. Um, the philosophers, the great philosophers of the world, and the scientific approach to different behaviors. So you've got those three overlaid um, perspectives, and then you look at those three different layers across six core principles that can help people be happier. And I think, honestly, for me, this was a book that impacted my life as far as the way I look at the world. But I think for people in the workplace, especially people leaders, especially those that don't have company values then that are looking for some foundational values to anchor their company values to that have depth, that have research, that have backing to it. Um, this is that blueprint where any organization could build from and 
customize their company values blended with their brand voice and with research founded in human happiness. So I think it's it's pretty remarkable how it's been laid out. Yeah, this was a fabulous experience for me to write this book and I've been working on it for years. And, you know, we I wanted to cast a broad net and look at everything we know about human happiness and civility and communities. And so I went back almost 5,000 years to the early religious writings of the Hindus and then Buddhism uh, entered the world and then Christianity and then Islam. And if you read those original texts, you know, not all the breakaway groups, but the original texts of the founders, you find that they teach pretty much the same concepts of happiness, relationship building and civility, almost identical. And then modern science, uh, which we tend to value more in this uh, world, uh, vets those concepts and shows that in, through hundreds of studies, those concepts have been taught for thousands of years, really help us to be happier as humans, help us to have better and more satisfying relationships and help us to have more civil communities. So I wanted it to be believable for everyone. And so we included you know, ancient wisdom with modern day science. But the cool thing is it, it really revealed for us a process that can be used in organizations. And so the first step is we look at our own limiting self-perceptions at work. And you made a great point, Matt, that just to say, we're gonna just give, teach you therapy at work is a little bit broad, but to say, we're gonna teach you principles that improve your work and your career. And so the first one is looking at limiting self-perceptions that are affecting your career and where did those come from and are they real? And typically they're fabricated. They're fed mm -hmm. to us from communication from others. Then we say, okay, now look, we form perceptions of other people in the same way we form perceptions of ourselves. And those are not accurate. We look at superficial cues, you know, like race, ethnicity, religion, political parties, and then we fill in all the missing pieces and construct personalities for others. And that builds walls and, and limits our interaction and our desire to be friends with those people, which limits our happiness and our success at work. And then if we realize that, hey, I'm a work in progress, you're a work in progress, and you start doing good deeds for each other and sharing resources, time and talents and knowledge, you know, it's a cycle that just leads to better human flourishing at work, better satisfaction at work, better culture at work and better performance at work. That's honestly remarkable. And honestly, I totally agree. It, like the behaviors that people have at work, it connects the relationships that are present there. And those relationships ripple to behaviors and performance. And I was looking for a quote in your book from John M. Huntsman. I actually highlighted this one, so I just want to read it. Um, this really stood out to me from the book. All businesses have a bottom line and ours is not the building of profits. Our bottom line is the utilization of profits to enrich the human soul and to alleviate human suffering. Uh, that, that's a quote from John M. Huntsman, who the Utah State School of Business was named after. And you, you quoted him in your book, but that really stood out to me in, in the sense of you know, business can be better than what it has been in past ages. And for me, recognizing that people are people, that we have emotions, that there are needs to be fulfilled. And if an organization understands that and can systemize ways to maximize need fulfillment for their team members, then they're unlocking that discretionary effort that only the individual can choose to give. It's not 
required transactionally with the employment you know relationship that contract that exists but the employee will be willing to give that to further the mission of the company but companies can exist for more than profit and i think we see more companies doing that today you know with the rise of b corps benefit corporations like patagonia and cotopaxi and and many others and i i just think that this book really can help companies look at um, the way they support their teams with the people first approach that is proven and will actually help achieve these results. Yeah, I think at some time in life, we have to all decide if we're going to be givers or takers. And the research is so clear that if we, if we get up in the morning and look at ourselves and say, you know, me, 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 do I look right? Is my hair right? Am I dressed right? Am I gonna say the right things today? That leads to a different different chemical reaction in the brain of difference in neurotransmitters, uh, cortisol, adrenaline. That if we get up and say, "Hey, I'm I'm a work in progress. I'm going to go out and do some good today. Uh, I want to find someone that I can add value to their lives," and we become a giver, uh, it changes that brain chemistry, which changes our emotional health and eventually our physical health. And so, it's the best antidote for all of these. Of the six principles, this is probably the most powerful in changing our lives in real time. And you know, we all have needs. We I work with people living in poverty in Africa, and I work with billionaires and everyone in between. We all have needs. You know, uh, you're not more needy if you lack income than someone that has a lot of income. And so, if we go out and look for ways to add value to anyone and everyone, that's uh, the best medicine that we can take. And uh, if organizations, you know, teach, hey, we want to be kind, we want to, we want all of us to get, engage in acts of kindness, and the leadership demonstrates that, uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, one of the things I quote in the book is from Delancey Street and now the Other Side Academy, which is one of the, they're both two of the most successful rehabilitation programs for convicted felons, and the motto is, when person A helps person B, person A gets better. So the helper gets better. And uh, so, yeah, that's one of the concepts is to create a kinder organization of giving rather than taking. I think we all <clears throat> we all have a desire to be happy. I think that's a pretty universal goal is just to find happiness. And I think a lot of people, especially maybe in America, we strive. We think that we'll find that with business success. And, and that's a lot of what the American culture is, right? The American dream, go go build a business and make lots of money. And I think we talked earlier before uh, starting this recording um, about how that kind of success is actually not really correlated with our happiness. But that yeah. how, yeah, go, maybe you can share a little bit about that. Yeah, the most recent research shows that success is not linked to happiness, career success. So we used to think, I get a great education at a great school. I get a great job. I get pay raises. I get promotions. I have a great house. I have a nice car, several nice cars. That that would be, uh, you know, the epitome of happiness. But the research shows that link is not there. At, at best, it's a little fuzzy, and at worst, it's non-existent. The more recent research is showing that happiness in the workplace or emotional well-being at work is the key driver of success for individuals and teams. And people that are happy at work, uh, this research is quite clear. They're more likable. 
They have better relationships. They perform better. They get more promotions. They stay with the organization longer. They don't engage in quiet quitting. And uh, so all the things that we would like to see at work happen when people can be happy in the workplace. And that's one of our main goals with this podcast is to help everyone realize that that connection, that helping your employees be happy is what makes your business more successful because a lot of that is the goal for a lot of people and for businesses is to be successful, to make money. That's probably why they exist, but to have even a greater mission and vision beyond that is, is amazing. So. Yeah, and a lot of companies, you know, try to promote happiness by creating, you know, pool tables and sleeping pods and time <laughs> off. And But really the best thing that we do now, we teach these classes and we teach them the values and behaviors for happiness that have to be implemented in the workplace. And this is one of the most exciting things we do that, you know, people know about these six principles. No, no one has not heard of them. They're simple. The problem is we don't practice them. And so in our courses and training programs, we require people to, for example, do three good deeds a day for seven weeks or 14 weeks or a full month, and, and then journal what that does for the person they serve as well as themselves. And we have them go through all their material possessions and look at things they haven't used for a year and they have to go give things away, not just drop them off at you know, Salvation Army or Desert Industry, but find someone that might need what they have. And so they're starting to share, they're starting to do good deeds, they have to take the Harvard implicit bias test to see where their biases lie and work, you know, for several weeks on overcoming those. So they actually practice the concepts. And what that does is it causes them to see a difference in who they are and who they become and how they feel about themselves and other people. And then our hope is that in, you know, three, four months or three or four years, if they start slipping into despair, they'll remember, I quit doing those things. And when I was doing those things, I was happier. So we're trying to get people to become converted to the deeds of happiness and well-being and civility through practice, through acting as if, basically. Yeah. So as we talked about earlier with corporate civility, that's what you want to train these companies. And and how do you how do you gauge that for people leaders and HR leaders? How do they gauge that level of civility in their teams and what should they do about it? So it's a long process to create a real positive culture or to improve culture. And the first thing is that the leaders need to understand the behaviors and start practicing them. And then they need to provide training to teach others and allow them to practice those behaviors. And over time, we start seeing shifts in organizational culture. It doesn't have to take months. It can happen in weeks. But then the way that you assess it, there's lots of ways to assess this. There's employee surveys. There's, uh, you know, exit interviews when people leave. There's focus groups. Um, one of the best uh, systems we've seen is from Mel Torrey, who owns Automated Systems, Inc., up there in Cache Valley. And he has a program called Humble, and he actually assesses how humble his organization is. And, uh, it's again, it's promoting civility and positive relationships so are you listening to people deeply? Do you respect others? Are you valuing their input? Are you allowing for growth? And he actually creates a, a humble score, uh, which promotes civil interaction. But there are a lot of ways to measure it. But the most important thing is you got to get started on uh, modeling it and training it. And then there are ways to assess it, uh, lots of different ways. 
Wow, that's remarkable and a pretty cool example from uh, from ASI of how they're using the humble model that that they created. I think it's really cool. Like as as you were talking about those different exercises and things that individuals can do to um, strengthen their happiness through you know exercise of these different principles, it just made me think of athletes and how athletes have to exercise and train and practice to perform. I think sometimes we're surprised that other elements of our life also need that level of focus, practice, attention, and just being purposeful. Um, But it really shouldn't be a surprise. If we want to be happy, um, we can practice. We can actually train um, and, you know, execute these different elements to strengthen relationships, to be more giving and to see the world in a different light. And that can help, you know, rewire our brain, like the principle of positive psychology. There's a book that we've read, the the happiness factor that talks a little bit about related teachings and principles. And I think it's awesome what you're doing and the way that you're approaching it in such such a systematic way. Whether you're a giver or a taker, I think, you know, takers can become givers if they desire that and they start practicing these principles, they can become that way and be happier. And we're all we're all givers and takers at different times throughout yeah. our life. But if we learn to give, we're happier than if we just take. But I'm glad you made that point about practice. The all the great researchers you have Matthew Ricard, you have uh, Richard Davidson, and they they've concluded after years of research that happiness is a skill that you learn and practice, and you get better and better at it, and that the human uh, brain can develop these skills. And uh, Richard Davidson compares it to learning to play an instrument. You practice the cello or the guitar or the piano and you get better at it. And if you know the concepts of happiness, but you don't practice them, it's, they're not going to do you any good. And so you have to be committed to practicing them. And that's why in all of our university courses, uh, we have a university course. Um, we have an MBA course. We have a corporate course. Uh, they're required to actually practice and journal and then come back and report on how their week went and why it was different than the week before. And, uh, you know, we've had just rave reviews about these courses that people are saying that's they're changing their lives as they learn to practice the concepts. That's so that's incredible. the key. Yeah, practice makes perfect. Yeah, and I think you've been such a great example of that. And and we've, we've learned from your experiences. And check out One People, One Planet to all our listeners. Um, because I think you want to be happier too, and you want to have a better culture in your company. And this is definitely one of those foundational ways to accomplish that. So thank you, Mike, for being with us here today. And to all our listeners, remember to subscribe so you can check out our next episode. Yep. And make sure to leave a review of the Culture Profit and check out the reviews of One People, One Planet on Amazon. And thank you so much for being here with us today, Mike. Thanks for having me. It was great visiting with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Culture Profit Podcast and for being a part of our journey to prove that putting people first is best for business. Today's episode was sponsored by Mowbray. Want to get more employee reviews and streamline your employer reputation? Visit mowbrium.com. Now go find one way to prioritize your people and watch your profits grow.